0: today again to another episode of the Seamless Connection podcast. I'm super excited to have Dr. O'Neill Pike with me on, the CMO of Jackson Health System in Miami. Um, I'm going to hand it off to Dr. Pike real quick to introduce himself and give a little bit of background on his 20 years in the healthcare space as a practicing physician and as an administrator. Um, And then we'll dive into what brought him to where he is today. Dr. Pike?
1: Sure, sure. So one minor correction is um, I'm the Chief Medical Officer at Jackson North Medical Center, which is a part of the Jackson Health System. Um, And, you know, yeah, I've been practicing for uh, 23, 24 years um, in internal medicine, primarily hospital medicine. And I've concentrated the last probably 10 years in the intensive care unit. And um, I joke with my colleagues and friends that uh, after a year and a half of um being in i c u during covid, it led me right to being an administrator so um'm wearing a suit and um and a bow tie, I gave up my scrubs and here I am back wearing a bow tie and um and a suit every day so um here we go
0: no that that makes a lot of sense what brought you to medicine in the beginning in terms of one just becoming a practicing physician and two choosing to be an intensivist uh, at the, you know once you decided what specialty you're going into?
1: Sure. You know, Mina, I, I always wanted to be a doctor. I um, In my probably late high school years and my early college years, um, I wasn't really as good a student as I became. Uh, I was a little bit distracted like many um, late teen year te- um, kids. And, but I always wanted to be a doctor. In fact, I joke with my mom now that I told her um, at eight years old that I shouldn't do yard work because I wanna save my hands for surgery. And she jokes with me because I have two siblings who are surgeons and I'm not. So here, (laughs) but um, I've always wanted to do medicine and I loved the practice of internal medicine. I think that was the deepest that I could get in understanding and caring for the adults. And when I left training, I concentrated primarily on the inpatient side of things And I got into hospital medicine, which was a field that was emerging at the time, only a couple years old when I started in hospital medicine as a field. And it's really become a part of me. It's really been my identity in medicine for the last 20 plus years of uh, practicing.
0: Now, I know that COVID was traumatic for a lot of people in a lot of different ways, but not least of which from a physician's perspective, if you're willing to, would you share some of your experiences there, um, both as a physician, but also just looking at from a leadership perspective, right? There was a lot of things that, lessons learned, as, as people say, but uh, maybe just a first to start with from a personal perspective, as a practicing physician in the ICU units, um, dealing with patients that were intubated, um, that were potentially responding or not responding, sadly, as the case may be. Um, and obviously, I know Jackson North well, I know the community well, and there's a lot of people that uh, maybe aren't in the best of health to begin with, right? And, and maybe didn't have the best of outcomes to begin with. So I know you saw a lot of, of less than ideal outcomes. So how, how has that changed your view of healthcare or how healthcare should be delivered to people to maybe improve outcomes um, from where they are today?
1: Great question. I actually experienced COVID from a multitude of vantage points. So I would start first by the experience in the ICU back when COVID started. And at that time, actually, I was a practicing physician in the ICU in a hospital in Pennsylvania. And at that time, we were truly devastated. The the ICU team is a very close-knit group of people. We have only a number of physicians. It, for me, it was a closed ICU at my facility, which simply means that we, um, we were just a small group and we only allowed patients, um, I'm, I'm sorry, physicians who were practicing in the ICU to see patients really in ICU outside of consults. And so we are a very close-knit group. And for several months, we literally did not have a survivor of COVID. And I tell you, it was a devastating blow for a group of people who prided themselves on bringing people from the brink of death often to um, not only life, but actually functioning life and thriving life. And so here we were faced with a disease that we just couldn't understand. Everything we did um, seemed to fail until finally, we had um, one success, if if you will, um, about two months in. And by that time, we had lost probably in our small ICU, we lost probably 15 to 20 um, patients at that time to COVID. Um, fast forward to the fall of 2020 when myself, I got COVID. And as a provider, you think that I got COVID from the ICU? No. I was actually traveling to California for a meeting and somehow contracted COVID and brought it back home and um, put me out of work for uh, a month and a half. I was. Uh, very, very sick. I was not hospitalized. I have two siblings who are physicians and a mom who is a nurse. And so I was able to actually get the care at home, even though I was recommended to um, be hospitalized. I was a bad patient in that way, but I did have all the care I needed IV fluids included, um, all the attention I needed at home. And um, after about 30 days, I turned the corner. I lost from a small frame. I'm not a big person to begin with. I lost uh, 25 pounds, um, and that was me not losing my appetite during this time. But I had a very high fever, um, and, and so it really devastated my body. Um, you know, it was just my body was in what we call a catabolic state, which whatever number, whatever number of calories I put in, I um, somehow was just still losing weight. And that weight stayed off of me, Um even when I got back to work for several more months, it wasn't until I I think in March of 21 that I was able to say I'm back to maybe where I was pre-COVID illness. And, um, and then to your point, I relocated to an administrative position in the spring of 21 here in Miami from Pennsylvania. And at that time, we felt like we had a little lull. We had some low numbers when I entered this Jackson health system. It wasn't terribly high. And then we had the Delta wave, right? And so the Delta wave just, again, was as devastating, if not more, because it was more deadly than the prior wave of COVID. And we struggled. We struggled primarily with nursing staffing. We struggled with physician staffing, um, but mostly I think the nursing and ancillary staff members, not only those who are sick, but just having the capability of um, not having the nurses burnt out by, um, you know, donning and doffing, as we call it, putting on all that stuff um, to protect themselves from COVID themselves, it was just a really tough um, time. And I'll I'll say, you know, um, and folks who are more tenured than me um, said similarly that, this was Easily the hardest thing that we have gone through in a healthcare environment. Um, in my twenty odd years twenty seven years total in medicine, but folks who have been practicing for forty years said the same thing and not not too um, far from the truth because this is a once in a hundred year kind of um, event that we experienced over the last several years. Um, so you know really tough, but here we are, and for those of us who' survived, um, you know we're really grateful um for that but you know still um you know troubled by the number of lives that were lost some of our own family members and friends um my own family member um i had family members who died um due to covid so devastating on all fronts i would say yep
0: yeah. no and i'm sorry to hear about the the loss in the family as well as just kind of everything you had to live through and everyone's got their kind of what happened to you when stories and it's just it, it's so different but it, it, at the same time it speaks to a lot of similarities and what people experienced yeah. which in um, one way is good, is it because it connects us. We, It's it's, uh, it's a commonality that we can all refer to and build off of and hopefully grow off of. And so one of the things I'd like to ask you about is you're, um, for better or for worse, you saw COVID from two different communities, right? And I'd love if you could compare and contrast the communities in terms of not necessarily the outcomes of the patients, but how were they able to deal with it and what do you, you know, what are, what are the best practices that we can take from what you saw in, in either location, really, to potentially um, have better results next time or to, to have a smoother result next time? Um, obviously, there's some things that no one could control for, short, you know, staffing shortages, PPE shortages, et cetera. Um, is there stuff on that front we can do to prepare, but also from a community perspective? Um, as we know, health equity is, is a big issue. And you came from Philadelphia to Miami, both areas that have huge health equity issues. Um, and so wondering if you saw any any key lessons that we could draw as as a society to say, hey, this is what it was like. And this is what happened when we didn't do this. So if we do this, maybe next time. X." Right.
1: Yeah, I, I think that COVID, I, I say to my colleagues and I prior to. Uh, coming here, one of the jobs that I had, I had uh, the position of being a healthcare consultant. I you know, worked in a healthcare consulting environment as a full-time job. Clinical medicine was actually my part-time job before I moved to Miami. And I had the, the um, I would say, privilege of being invited into many institutions across the country to examine their ICUs, their critical care units in particular, but also their hospital medicine area, their ERs. And so I had a wealth of knowledge just by that experience of seeing many areas. Um, and I look at this and I was um, I was struck by how this um, reminded me of Katrina, even though that was a uh, completely different kind of natural disaster that hit New Orleans. And what happened there that I saw as a parallel was the way it devastated primarily folks who were marginalized and were in a very poor social status to begin with. So the fo- folks who are at the lowest rung of the socioeconomic ladder was mostly devastated by uh, Katrina, where they literally just did not have the means to get out of the path of the storm. And so with COVID, we saw the same thing. We saw that both in Pennsylvania, um, in New York, uh, my, both my siblings practiced, um, still practice in New York, and me from Pennsylvania to here in Miami, folks who had um, challenges with just um, meeting their basic needs every day, suffered the most. They were the ones who actually had the most deaths. And so for example, when I had COVID, I was able to uh, social distance in a large space. I was able to compartmentalize myself um, in isolated fashion without issues. There are many people that we actually spoke to during COVID, after COVID who had um, a lot of insecurities, food insecurities, housing insecurities, where they lived in a very small space and they could not socially distance. And so it affected the entire family in a way that did not affect mine. When I had COVID, I was the only person in my household who got COVID at that time. Um, No one else was affected at all. They were able to distance themselves from me completely without being impacted. And so even though I know that I was not affected in that way, my family wasn't affected in that way, I I had to really examine this from a clinician's um, vantage point and realize that this, again, um, reminds us of the health inequity that we have in our society, that someone just from these basic things, their basic um, food insecurity, housing insecurity, and even health access, Um, issues. They weren't able to get to the hospital in time, get to the clinic in time to actually get examined and maybe turn the corner. Simple things like having um, clean drinking water to stay hydrated. And this in the wealthiest nation on earth um, was actually a little embarrassing, especially when I um, spoke to colleagues who were dealing with similar things in Spain, primarily in Italy. Um, I had conversations when we reached out to colleagues to say, hey, what are you doing? Um, about this and um, brazil was another place that we spoke to those areas for some reason did not have the same um equity problems that we we faced especially in the urban area and the, in the rural area in the us and so we lost a lot of lives i felt that i hope that we, we we could learn from that um that experience i don't see any evidence that we have but hopefully we there's still yet time to learn from it
0: that's really interesting you say that uh, with the international difference, because um, especially with the favelas in Brazil, there's obviously a lot more. I mean, I'm from India. There's a lot of, um, you know, shanty towns and, and things like that where there's huge poverty, people living very close, literally cheek to jowl in, in you know, little metal sheds, essentially. Um, with open latrines on the side of the road. So um, I'm actually really surprised and actually enheartened that there were ways to control it and to do things to make things better, even if you didn't have all the high-tech benefits potentially that we do in the US. Mm-hmm. So that brings me back to, you know, what do you think that they did different that worked? And where does that bring you as an administrator at Jackson in one of, if not the largest kind of county hospital system in the country treating patients from all manners, um, right, that that have resources and that also don't have resources, maybe new immigrants, maybe a well-established family. How does that, um, you know, how has that changed how you're approaching things at Jackson uh, locally?
1: Sure. So, you know, at Jackson, we have a lot of social programs in and around the um, Miami-Dade County, and we have been able to um, to, to channel a lot of our patients who have those insecurities to those areas. Never enough, never enough. Our resources um, were still overwhelmed by the demand. And um, that we are um, as saddened by. And in fact, um, at Jackson, we have actually embarked on a, a larger mission in looking at how we can actually reach out to not only some communities, but really all communities. And um, we're really galvanizing around the needs of these um, um, people, not necessarily patients, right? because a lot of things that we really need in Miami-Dade, and we have a lot of um, problems with just simple primary care and having the primary care follow-up and those um, kind of um, resources in the community. That stated, though. I think that Miami is not any different from other communities when I speak to colleagues across the United States and the resources were again overwhelmed by the demand. In other countries, I think they were overwhelmed. This is the reason the difference though. I think partly I was a little shocked because we don't lack resources, we lack access to resources because just like I was able to actually get the cure, I, when I was sick, I called my, co- my colleague who had a clinic, And um, without um, hesitation, I had IV fluids and and, and, um, medications. And even while I was laying there in his urgent care clinic, getting the this access to care, I must admit, and I spoke to my siblings and my parents about it, I felt a little bit um, bad. And, And maybe just maybe it was just empathy talking, but I just felt bad for folks who were similar In me, with me, like me, you know, in that they're similar age, similar um, other demographic details, and who probably lost their lives because they just didn't have that access. Because COVID was similar to a lot of other viruses that have actually um, hit us in the past, right? Every year we have people die from the flu. This one, I felt, if we were able to advance some of those social, resources, um, we could have actually saved some lives, not all, because we did a lot of um, good work that, um, you know, fell short of saving the life for folks who were well resourced. Uh, My own family member who died um, was well resourced, and yet we couldn't save his life. And so I feel like we could have done some things for some folks who Um, could have been impacted positively. But overall, the lessons learned around this um, and what I take from this is we're looking at how do we actually get out into the neighborhood and um, with a community outreach. And that's what we've been doing myself and some of my other colleagues within the Jackson Health System to find out more about those um, housing and food and water insecurities that we can actually meet the patients, meet the people actually where they are And try to actually impact them there before they actually get sick, not only with COVID, but with things like high blood pressure. And so we do a lot of clinic work. We go to um, churches and other community centers to actually just talk and meet with patients and people there. Um, Primarily the mothers, we focus a lot on moms because moms um, make a lot of healthcare decisions. And so we focus a lot on that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a heavy lift and we see it as a marathon. We don't see it as something where I will be the, the one who answers this question, but I can answer the question for maybe these five people. And that might be my, my task. And that's the way we actually handle it.
0: No, that's great. And and do you think that, um, is that the difference that you saw from Brazil and Spain and Italy versus what happened in the U S Were there more community resources already in place that people had access to versus, In the U.S., you could only go to set hospitals. If you couldn't get there, then you were out of luck?
1: You know, not really. I think it was more expectations um, that we had as our country, as um, such a wealthy nation. I I think it was more expectations. Um, I don't think that we um, had—Brazil was devastated by this, likewise. And to your point, um, folks who lived in those areas, they were um, disproportionately devastated by this. And so I think it was more of an expectation, honestly, because when I spoke to colleagues and um, who were in Italy and Spain primarily, uh, they had their own, their hands were full and they were devastated by it in a different way because they did not have actual resources to meet the demand. I felt like we had resources, but we had had access problems for certain groups of people um, and so that was—it's just a different um, way to see it, but it was primarily access that we had with um, with our issues.
0: No, that's fantastic. And 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 as we've talked about um, before, health equity is such a nuanced issue because it takes into account all the things you're saying. It's not just a healthcare issue. It's food, it's housing, it's education, it's income and poverty. Um, All of those things come, which, you know, no one hospital, no one person, no one institution can solve. It's going to be a blend of all those. And as we know, it's like hurting cats. So um, it's fantastic to hear how you guys are taking it to the patients in the community. Um, How's the response been? Are people open? I know sometimes there is... um, you know, some sensitivity to accepting <laughs> accepting help and, and seeing how things go. How has that worked out since uh, in the last year or so? Um, and are you encouraged by the response? Is the community open and, and accepting or is it still an uphill uh, conversation?
1: I think our community, like others, have a healthy skepticism for any kind of uh, resources that's been afforded them. Um, and we've had good success in reaching out to uh, populations And what we have done is we lean on trusted resources within the community um, to be the voice of, let's say, um, hey, Dr. Pike is actually a legitimate um, doctor who cares about you. And so when the minister at the church or community center says that, it resonates with the people who trust him or her, and that um, we use and it transfers to us when we go into whether it's a blood pressure um, you know, clinic or other clinic. Um, so we lean on those trusted resources within the community. And in so doing, uh, those that trust transfers to us. It's very hard to enter any community when you're not from there to then just ask them to blindly trust what you're saying or what you're doing, uh, because there's well, documented uh, precedent to folks who come in with um, a lot of, um, you know, fancy words and they take away from the community and they don't give back as much as they say they will. And so we, we understand that Um, I'm a student of history as I am of medicine. And so I go in with that mindset that um, I, I need to gain that trust. Just like when, as a hospital medicine doctor, when I walk into a room, I had generally four or five days to, to gain that person's trust. And then a lot of times I had maybe that first visit to gain that person's trust and whether, you know, for me, I had to learn, I had to learn to sit at a bedside, eye level with the patient. I had to make sure I engage with them with proper eye contact. I had to make sure that I examined them, listened to them, and then spend time with them and made them feel like they were the only patient. And so when I go to the community, I bring that same mentality that I need to gain that person's trust because at the end of the day, I'm not that physician who just prescribes in just blind hope that they will actually respond to it. I really feel deeply that my job is go, going beyond that and to um, making sure that they have at least some chance of, um, of hearing, understanding, and maybe following those um, things that we're actually advising them. Um, because at the end of the day, it's really, we are, and we should be, somewhat of a results oriented. We want to improve the lives. We're not trying to save lives. All of us, we have a finite um, time on earth. What we want to do is as this journey, we want to actually improve that person's journey in whatever way we can and however we can support them and their families.
0: I think that's 100% right in terms of When you, when you as a patient, when I, as a patient feel connected to my doctor, I'm more likely to listen to them, right? I'm more likely to be compliant with my treatment recommendations. I'm more likely to take my medication. I'm more likely to do all the uncomfortable things that you're telling me to do (laughs) to get better, all of that, right? So getting that, that connection to that patient population is so key. Um, when you're dealing with such a diverse population as the Miami area, how are you able to do that through? Uh, and I know your hospital staff is very diverse, but obviously there's only so much you can do with a staff of, you know, 100 when you're dealing with a million people, just making up numbers. But um, how do you approach diversity and the impact that it would have for reaching and connecting with your target, you know, community? and making them feel heard and understood when maybe their doctor doesn't look like them or doesn't have the same background as them or speak the the same language as them?
1: Yeah, and that's a great question, Um, know, The um, years ago, before I even moving to Miami, I um, got involved in learning first and then started giving talks on, um, I used to call it cultural competency. And as my research kind of um, advanced and evolved, it evolved into my talks becoming more of a cultural humility in healthcare. And um I came to that. There are a couple um physicians out in Southern California who kind of coined that term and I'm I'm missing their names right now, but um two ladies who were really well versed in this area. And what it speaks to is we can't depend on um you know us having always having a physician who looks like us. But how do we actually connect with that individual on a human level um, and make sure that person understands that we care? And not just we care because we get paid for it, but we care on a human level that they are actually here in an institution, oftentimes at their most vulnerable state. And so what I've been doing, and I've done this a number of times since I've been at Jacksonib, is meet with our um, physicians or hospital medicine physicians or critical care doctors and have... Um, Sit down talks, round table talks about cultural humility in healthcare, And what does that look like in in an actionable sense? Because it's one thing to actually say cultural humility, but how do you do that in action? So it's not rocket science, right? And it means that if you don't look like me, that should not matter because that will almost never you will not find uh, always a Jamaican doctor, uh, Indian doctor, a Haitian doctor, Chinese doctor. But what you will find and you, what you should demand is someone who is paying attention to you and someone who comes to your bedside, comes to your appointment prepared to care for you, to help you on your journey to better. And so, all of us on our journey to better, we want people to actually listen to us, to be attentive to us, to be teachers of us, um, to us. And so, you know, I won't understand when someone comes to actually. Fix something in my home. I, I'm not going to understand everything that person is doing, but I would like that person to explain at a high level, um, generally what they're what they're doing. And that's the same thing with healthcare. Um, a person comes in. I will. I cannot explain to them what the 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 impacts of the the magnesium or calcium in their blood vessels and how that works to actually manage their blood pressure. They will not understand that, and I shouldn't try to get to that level. But what I can do is I can talk to them about the, the things that they can manage in and why they should be compliant with their medications, why should they should be compliant with their diet and such. And those things that I can do. And when I'm doing it, I have to be there, I have to be present. And if I need to actually overcome linguistic barriers, I need to actually get that person to help me translate. And not just pretend like, oh, I'm speaking English and I'm speaking the best English I can, but this person's primary language is Spanish or Creole or or Hindu. We have to actually break those barriers. And I think that we have the resources in most institutions, most clinics to do that. But one of the things that we actually lack is time and and patience. I was going to
0: say, we've all been there.
1: And exactly. I told you, uh, like, even profession. when we go to, yeah. when I go to a, a, my physician, um, all, in fact, I've left, I, I actually fired doctors who I would go to them and Mina, I kid you not, I would sit there in the office and they would say, hello, Neil, you know, that good. Okay. All right. That's good. Greet me. And then they would proceed to turn away from me and they're on a computer and they're just typing and there's no engagement there's no listening because they're actually um, thinking about the next three or four patients that they have to see before a certain time. And so one of the things that I've actually encouraged folks to do is to prepare ahead of time for your patients because we we live in the world we live in. And the world we live in is that doctors just don't have enough time. And so for my friends who have the resources to do so, I've always encouraged them to get a concierge doctor get someone who can spend time with you. For those of us who don't have that kind of um, financial means to just go off and get a concierge doctor and pay them outside of insurance, I try to tell my colleagues who are in the space of healthcare of delivering care is make sure you prepare as much as possible to be as efficient as you can when you get in there. So focus on the patient, look at the patient, engage as on a humanistic level with that person and when you're done, sometimes when you're sitting there for even three minutes, it feels like 20 minutes to that person when you engage meaningfully with them, as opposed to this person who turned his back and he was actually just talking to me. And I could see that he wasn't listening, by the way, because I would, I would answer some questions and I'm, I'm like, and this was actually a friend. So I had to fire a friend because it was not just a, a colleague. It was actually a friend. And... I must admit, um, if he ever watches this, he might know that he's not now finding out why now I, um, I fired him because to be (laughs) honest, I was a little bit, I didn't know how to tell him that I was firing him, (laughs) but but yeah, I think, and and I, I remember writing an article about this, um, maybe a year or two ago in, um, a local magazine here in Miami. And, and I told, um, folks in in the article to own their health, own their own health. If you are not getting what you're supposed to be getting from your physician or your healthcare environment, try to make sure you change it. Speak to them about it. If they can't change it, try to change it because you owe it to yourself to find someone who listens to you, is attentive to you. And it's not the quantity time. You don't have to spend 15, 20 minutes to really get to the heart of things. It's just meaningfully engaging in that moment and listening and then documenting what you heard after Uh, you know and not trying to do everything at once to to type feverishly on a keyboard while you're pretending like you're listening to me so anyway
0: great and actually one thing uh, uh, one thing i want to just double click on right there is when people have resources, when they come from a, you know, a, a, the backgrounds where you have the education, you know what you should be getting. It's easy to advocate for yourself and to say, "Hey, yeah. this isn't right. I, I expected this, or I, I have these questions and, and I'm expecting these answers." Uh, like you and I go into a hospital. someone doesn't treat us right, like you said, we can fire the doctor, or we can advocate for ourselves, or we or our families will advocate for us, right? Yeah. What about for the people? And this is a big issue we've seen with health equity they don't know what it should be because they haven't seen anything different or they don't know how it could be so what would you what is your best piece of advice for people that are trying to advocate themselves and, and are trying to be your best you know get get your best self um treated right so what can what advice do you have for the average patient that maybe doesn't have a medical background or doesn't have a college degree or doesn't have a you know sophisticated understanding of how the health system works or should work how can they advocate for themselves and and even get to to the point that you're talking about, which is to ask for what they need.
1: You know, one thing I I, um, advise patients to always do is find a trusted individual um, in their circle, and all of us have a circle of people. And um, maybe there are people out there, um, I shouldn't say everyone, Um, many of us though have a circle that we can trust someone there to take along with with us to our doctor's appointment. Because in the moment, there is a legitimate thing called white coat syndrome um us in the healthcare field are intimidating um we no matter how nice we are no matter how much we try um to you know wear a jacket or dress casual we are in that setting where um we value our help all of us do and um and i think that bringing someone along if you can um is probably one of the, the most meaningful things as someone who can listen and pay attention who who are not themselves engaged in that encounter. The other thing that I would say is prepare for your actual visits. Uh, Before going to the doctor, you have to actually, again, own your own health. If you are hypertensive, um, get your blood pressure checked often. So you come to the physician prepared to say that while today my blood pressure is 160 over 90, which is elevated, over the past month or two, these are my blood pressure readings because what a doctor will do in a knee-jerk fashion is go off of that single measure and not really take the time to realize that this person is anxious and they're actually here in an environment that's very um, disconcerting for them. And so that elevates their blood pressure by sometimes 15, sometimes more in terms of percentage points. And so a patient, a person should be prepared for them, for their visit. Be prepared also with regards to asking questions. Writing down your questions about what you've been experiencing. So as you approach your to um, your appointment, write down your questions because there's no. Even myself, I guarantee you, I go to the doctor and I, as educated as I am in the healthcare arena, I leave the doctor I'm like, ah, oh, I didn't ask her that. You know, so yeah, I forgot this. And and so if I'm forgetting it, and I'm not even intimidated by the healthcare environment, uh, folks who are, they will definitely forget. So. Write it down and make sure before you leave that doctor's appointment that your questions are answered. Because I'll tell you this, if you are prepared and a doctor sees that you are really engaged in your own health, they are forced, compelled to pay attention. And physicians, almost all physicians that I know, they are usually equally engaged when they see that your engagement is there. Um, And so that's one of the things just, Bring someone along, or I mean, if you if you can't if you go alone, be prepared with your questions written and share it with the doctor and make sure you get proper answers um, from them.
0: No, and that's right, and that's human nature, right? If you see someone engaging with you, you're gonna just give that much effort back. Right? Mm-hmm. So completely agree on that. Um, I know we're, we're coming up on time here, but I wanted to just just ask, what's next for you? There's a lot of exciting projects you're working on, a lot of new initiatives you're taking on, and, and they're making a big impact in the community and at Jackson North. What are you most excited about that you're working on right now, and, and where is that taking you next?
1: You know, so um, uh, I, I'm really excited about the Jackson health system myself. I joined um, just over two years ago, and I came here purposefully. I, I, I didn't... Um, accidentally bump into this. I had a lot of options. I um, had just finished an MBA. I, I was really being um, wooed back into the private sector. I was already in private sector um, doing consulting work and then having my clinical work on the side that really um, satisfied me um, with regards to professional um, work from both ends. But one of the things that I felt like I was missing was being exactly where I am now. Where I'm in a community that is somewhat marginalized on many levels, in a public hospital, um, and really caring for patients who are on their own journey um, through through to trying to get better, right? And I feel like this is something I did not want my career to end without being engaged in this kind of um, community. My younger sister was an OBGYN, gyn uh, She works in Queens, New York, and she's engaged in a community like this, and I. I just listen to her, you know, Thanksgiving dinner or when we go on vacations, talk about it, and how she lightens up, she brightens up when she talks about the mission and how she's actually frustrating as it is some days. And so my journey here was very uh, much uh, a purposeful decision. I think I'll be in the system here, hopefully, for the next several years. Um, I talked to my colleagues and friends in the system about our journey to better. And our journey, for me, this is my leg where I'm holding the baton in leading the clinical care at Jackson North. And my goal is to actually literally um, reset a foundation for a clearer understanding about best practices and bringing those best practices, knowing that we have limited resources, but using within the context of those limited resources, bringing, bringing a lot of best practices into this environment. And I feel like we can. Um, We have bright people at Jackson, North. we have bright people in Jackson Health system. Um, I'm very inspired, for example, by my superior, the chief physician executive, who is within our system. He comes from a system outside um, in uh, University of Virginia and with some really fresh ideas. And I think that as we look at how we use our resources and actually maximize what we can for our patients, I'm excited. And so. Um, over the next um, few years, I'm going to be embarking on some more teaching. I've always been in academics teaching residents and students. I'm excited about that. I think they, um, these young folks, they hold you accountable. Um, you can't just go willy-nilly talking to them because they pop out their little phones with all these things. And they say, well, Dr. Pike, um, this says X, Y, and Z. And am like, oh, actually, you're right about that. And so getting involved in teaching is going to be really um, exciting for me and bringing more academics to my, um, we have a very large academic footprint in Miami-Dade, but bringing more of that in a meaningful way from OBGYN to primary care, the ER, critical care arena, bringing those um, resources and those actual pieces to Jackson North um, is gonna be very exciting for me because wherever you see academics, I'll promise you that, it elevates the care that we actually deliver because for me to just prescribe a medicine, that's one way. But for me to prescribe a medicine and in the same time explain why I'm prescribing the medicine, that is a different level. And it's usually a higher level when we have to purposely and critically think about why we're doing what we're doing. So I'm excited. I, I mean, Miami-Dade is a great uh, area to practice. I um, I'm excited about the, the path that we're on. And um, even though. It's frustrating some days, must admit. Um, I'm more excited than frustrated. That's for sure, Mina.
0: No, I mean, I've definitely seen the amazing impact you've had already in your last couple of years here, and I'm excited to see what what the future holds for the new programs you're bringing on board. I'm very excited.
1: Thank you. Thank you so very much.
0: Well, thank you again for the time today. Happy Friday, and I hope you have a lovely weekend.
1: Likewise. Thank you so much, Mina. Have a great day.